1904 curve dash was absolutely astonishing. I thought this thing was out to kill me. On a sharply crowned road with no sneeze room whatsoever, driving this tiller vehicle, I thought, this is terrifying. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you far and wide. And if you're new to the show, thanks for checking it out. And let me just tell you, you're going to hear a little bit of everything here, from pre-war cars to motorcycles, muscle cars, exotics. But whatever the topic or whoever the guest might be, it's always about the people and the stories behind the machines. So follow the podcast, leave me five stars and a quick review, and most of all, help me grow the audience by sharing the show with your friends. That is huge. All right. Well, today my guest is Donald Osborne. You may know Donald from his terrific segments called Assess and Caress on Jay Leno's Garage on CNBC, where he and Jay take a look at three collector cars and then give some history and values. And collector car valuation is just one of the many things Donald does. He's a highly respected automotive historian, consultant, and writer, and he's also the CEO of the Audrain Automobile Museum in Newport, Rhode Island. So I wanted to have Donald on to talk about the Audrain Newport Concord d'Elegance and Motor Week, which is happening September 30th through October 3rd. Newport is a pretty special place, and it's got some interesting connections to the very early days of motoring. And we got into a little bit of automotive history, and Donald is a wealth of knowledge, so I think you're really going to enjoy this one. And that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Maybe you can't afford that Shelby 289 Cobra or that Porsche 356 Speedster, but having a scale model on the shelf is easy with Model Citizen Diecast. They stock collector-grade scale models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the massive 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. And if you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, they'll give you 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Just visit ModelCitizenDieCast.com and check out their great selection. From race cars to classic cars and everything in between, Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, my interview with Donald Osborne, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Hello. Donald Osborne, what a pleasure <laughs> it is to have you here today. Well, my pleasure, Maurice. It's great to be here. You're a busy man, and you're really busy right now because in about a week, we have the Audrain Concours and Motor Week sponsored by the Audrain Automobile Museum in Newport, Rhode Island. It is about a week. Um... And it's a really exciting thing to bring the uh, Concord and Motor Week back. We had our inaugural event in 2019, and it was tremendously received. I've been involved in a lot of uh, Concord events uh, as an entrant, as the judge, as an announcer, as part of the administration. And I've never been involved in an event anywhere around the world that launched with the scale that we did here. And it was absolutely extraordinary. Of course, last year, we couldn't hold the event. Uh, we did have something to commemorate the weekend that it would have been held on. We did a tour, uh, which the community was very, very grateful uh, that we did. And now we're back, uh, fully fledged and uh, extremely excited about uh, our second event. Wonderful. Donald, 
the new season of Jay Leno's Garage has uh, just begun, and I understand that you've got some interesting segments. I am still doing segments of Jay Leno's Garage. In fact, uh, season six has just launched. Actually, at, uh, the first episode of season six premiered on uh, Wednesday, the 22nd of uh, September. And in fact, it's very interesting because uh, those of you who follow the uh, Audrain Museum Network YouTube channel uh, have probably seen the uh, show on the network called Mansions and Motor Cars, Audrain Mansions and Motor Cars, which Jay and I do together, combining my great love of architecture with uh, our shared love of, of cars. And on this season's uh, CNBC show, they're actually taking three uh, of the segments and making a condensed version and calling it Mansions and Motor Cars with Donald Osborne. And the first one was featured on the first episode of uh, this season's Jay Leno's Garage. So that'll be interesting to see where that goes. And uh, it's just another way that we are expanding the reach of uh, both the Audrain brand and uh, the ubiquitous and uh, ever-present Donald Osborne. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Donald, on first blush, Newport, Rhode Island is not where you think of when you think of classic automobiles. But in fact, the history of Newport is really steeped in the very beginnings of American automobile history. And for that matter, the uh, the European makes. Indeed, it is. And it's not just Newport, but actually all of Rhode Island. And the Rhode Island, of course, is a very small place. And people often don't know that uh, while Newport is certainly known for other sports such as sailing, golf, tennis, polo, but auto racing was a very, very, very important part of the early automobile scene here in Rhode Island and Newport. The first circuit race in the United States was held in Cranston in 1896. Uh, Willie K. Vanderbilt, of course, uh, summered here in Newport, and he was one of the pioneering American automobilists and certainly one of the first uh, people to really promote racing in the United States. And he held a race, the first Vanderbilt Cup race here at Aquidneck Park in 1900. And he and his pals loved racing up and down Bellevue Avenue and around Ocean Avenue in their cars. He commissioned a quite a famous series of uh, Renault uh, type AI 3545 racers based on the 1906 Grand Prix winning Renault uh, that he said to the company, hey, I've got nine friends who want to buy one of these, so build me 10 and I'll, they're all sold. They said, sure, why not? And they did and he did. And we actually have one of those in the Audrain collection. And there's nothing quite so exciting as uh, driving down Bellevue Avenue in a car that Willie K. Vanderbilt drove down Bellevue Avenue in 1907. Um, but also Newport has some other great automotive history. Uh, apparently, the first arrest for a traffic violation was made in Newport in 1904. A fellow was arrested for speeding and actually sent to jail uh, overnight for exceeding the speed limit, which was basically a brisk walk. So uh, it, you have to be very careful still in Rhode Island, but uh, things have gotten slightly uh, better than, than that. But uh, Rhode Island is, is a terrific place uh, for cars and car history. Uh, even the current exhibition that's in the Audrain Automobile Museum right now reflects that. It's called The Street to the Strip, New England Hot Rods, 1945 to 1965. And here in the gallery downstairs below my office here, we have 18 cars, 16 of which were built within 100 miles of the museum in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. And there's a great, great, great history of, of a lot of very exciting automobiling, drag racing, circuit racing, uh, rallies, all of this here in this area of New England. So, yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. It's, Newport is not just mansions and sailboats. 
Right. And it was the playground of the very wealthy at uh, the end of the 19th century, the so-called robber barons, right? And they built what they called cottages, but what we would recognize as mansions today. Yes, indeed. And uh, I have to add, I, I must hasten to add, by the way, because, you know, it's very easy to celebrate uh, Willie Kay and uh, his pals. But these folks were, as many rich people were, but these folks in particular, pioneering automobilists. And the pioneering automobilists that we also celebrated here at the Audrain in our last exhibition, which was called Women Take the Wheel, Fashion, Modernity, and the Automobile, which we did in collaboration with the Newport Historical Society, we celebrated the role that the automobile served in, frankly, liberating women uh, through the change in fashion, things that women wore in the 1880s, could not be worn to ride in an automobile by 1905, certainly not to drive an automobile. And we saw how women's fashions were changed by the automobile. And then by the time the 1920s came, the automobile was no longer this super rare um, plaything and toy. It was a practical item. And then fashion came in to the automobile. You had to have style in order to sell a car. And one of the great stories that, that we told in that exhibition, we had a spectacular 1904 double chain drive Mercedes simplex in the exhibition. And it's very likely the very car which Alice Vanderbilt drove in 1905 as a debutante down the street in Newport. And that was absolutely astonishing to think of a society young woman driving a car, especially a powerful car like the Mercedes. But her mother was sitting in the back seat to show approval that she fully approved of what her daughter was doing, that this was not at all scandalous or, or in any way uh, out of the ordinary. And it, again, showed the fact that there was a level of freedom that the automobile brought to entire populations, especially women and uh, minorities. Well, and after all, Bertha Benz was the first automotive test driver in history. Exactly. Although I, I'm led to believe by certain research that I've done that the marvelous story of her sort of sneaking the car away from Carl uh, was not quite true because Carl was a wonderful engineer, but Bertha was acknowledged as being a brilliant marketer. So that was quite planned. It was she didn't sneak the car out at all, and uh, it was it was a what it was probably one of the best um, demonstration testimonial uh, trips ever. Absolutely. So Donald, tell us about the origins of the Audrain Museum itself. The origins actually come related to architecture. Interestingly enough, um, the Audrain Automobile Museum is housed in a spectacular Italian Renaissance Revival building, and it was built by and for a fellow named Adolphe Audrain, who was born in California of French parents, and he lived in New York City. He was an importer. He imported uh, tabletop, uh, china, and also antiques, which he sold in a shop in New York. And he had a summer place here in Newport. And he thought, he saw the development in Newport, people building the houses, people spending money, spending time here during the season. And he thought, hmm, here's a business opportunity. So he commissioned Bruce Price to build this building as a speculative business venture, uh, retail on the ground floor and offices above. So for instance, the very first Brooks Brothers Ranch store was in the Audrain building. Um, the exhibition that we had, Women Take the Wheel, featured dresses that had descended in the Vanderbilt family from Alice and Gladys Vanderbilt. And many of those dresses were made by a dressmaker called Molly O'Hara, who had a shop in New York and a shop here in Newport in the Audrain building. So those clothes came back to the place where they had first been delivered to the Vanderbilt women. 
And so um, this building is an absolutely beautiful uh, place. It had fallen on fairly hard times, as, as much as Newport had by the 1980s. Um, in 2013, uh, a group of three partners who were together in a real estate business in New York, who all had summer places up here, thought, you know, we need to build summer offices for our company so that we can enjoy our time here and continue to work. So they looked for uh, suitable properties. They saw this. And they also all had an interest in architectural preservation and restoration. So they bought the building and then proceeded to embark upon a very ambitious and very well executed restoration and repurposing of the building for their offices. And they thought at first they would put retail downstairs. However, all three of them were also car enthusiasts and collectors. And so a few months into the construction of the project, much to the uh, chagrin of the contractors, they decided, hey, let's put a museum downstairs instead. Uh, in fact, an adjacent building uh, to us had been a car showroom back at the turn of the century and a car museum for a few years in the 1970s. And so they thought they'd do this and they established the Audrey and Automobile Museum as a 501c3 not-for-profit and opened in 2014 with the first exhibition, uh, which was all pre-war American classics. And since then, the museum has gone on to present, this is now our 20 fifth show. We now change shows four times a year on various themes with cars chosen from the Audrain collections, which consists of about 350 cars and about 60 motorcycles. And depending on the theme of the exhibition, occasionally we also do uh, loan shows where we will borrow cars from collectors and other institutions to tell the story that we need to tell. So it's a very exciting, very vibrant place. Uh, we also are very involved in the community. We host Audrain Cars and Coffee every other week from the beginning of May through the end of October at various sites around Newport and in the immediate area here in Aquidneck Island and draw a tremendous number of very passionate enthusiasts uh, from Rhode Island and nearby Massachusetts and Connecticut. And it's an amazingly vibrant car community all centered here in the Audrain. I was actually looking at the Audrain Cars and Coffee feed on Instagram, and there, there was some uh, terrific turnout and some really nice cars. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We had one uh, just uh, last Sunday uh, at the uh, uh, Newport Polo Grounds. We had over 420 cars. We're having another one on the weekend of the Audrain Concours and Motor Week on that Saturday at Fort Adams, and we're expecting well over 550 cars for that one. Um, so it's, it's an amazing uh, turnout of, of really passionate enthusiasts. Donald, you've got a very interesting background professionally. Of course, you were an opera singer. We've seen you on television, and you've been an automobile appraiser for many years. How did you come to be associated with the museum? Well, it's precisely uh, through my work as an appraiser and consultant. My friend and colleague, Jay Leno, introduced me to the chairman here at the Audrain because they had a need to have the collections appraised. And so five years ago now, I came up to do an appraisal of the collections and then began to work with the partners as a consultant on collection acquisition and refinement. That led to uh, my coming on board as a consultant as well for the inaugural uh, 2019 uh, Concord and Motor Week. And uh, little did I know <laughs> when I uh, took on that task, I was here in Newport for three weeks straight before the Concord and Motor Week. And apparently it was apparently a three-week job interview because the day before the Concours in 2019, they called me in and asked if I would consider coming on board as CEO to help grow the business and, and take it to the new places that they had in mind. And I thought, I think I'll just do this. And uh, 
a few weeks later, I had started here, uh, packed up my things from Southern California, where I'd been living for 12 years, and moved back east to Rhode Island. And here I am. You are a textbook case of finding a niche and becoming an expert. Well, it, it's it's very, very funny, um, Maurice, because as you mentioned, my background is quite varied. I've done five completely different things in my life, and they've all been extremely rewarding. And at first glance, they might be completely unrelated. Fascinatingly, what I'm doing right now is the culmination and combination of all the things I've done before. Uh, as a performer, I continue to perform with the videos that we do on the YouTube channel and my presentations here at the museum, uh, in the openings that we do uh, at the museum. I've also been very experienced in working on various boards of arts institutions and charitable institutions. So that fits in quite well with the running of the museum. I've also, of course, been working very hard at the evaluation and evaluation of, of cars and supervision of restorations of cars, all of which plays into what I'm doing here, helping the team to build the collection, refine the collection, and uh, best showcase the collection uh, for the world. I'm an author, so doing research on, on cars is something which I enjoy very much and is very much a part of what it is that I do. And uh, I've also been a curator and presented exhibitions in art museums and in uh, art galleries of automobiles. And so everything comes together uh, here in a, in a wonderful way. And in fact, uh, I, I laughed when they first asked me about it back in 2017, they were planning this event. My first thought was the world does not need another Concorde d'Elegance. Oh my God, I've been to so many and, and who needs another one of those? And then I got to know Newport more. And I thought Newport is an extraordinary place. I mean, I was born and grew up in New York City and I love the East Coast. I'm an, I'm an East Coast person, even though I lived in California for, for a dozen years. When I came back to the appraisal and I got to investigate Newport a little more, I thought this is an extraordinary place. There are very few cities in the United States that were founded in the 17th century. And Newport has a great 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st century history. It's always alive, it's always doing something, and it lives that history. The entire city shows its entire states of, of ages. And it's, it's not Williamsburg. Williamsburg is a great place, but people get dressed up in costume and pretend to live in these places. Newport is a place where people are living in 17th century houses, they're living in 19th century houses. They're sailing just like they did uh, from the 17th century. They are playing golf, they're playing tennis, they're playing with cars. And this is every day. And I thought this is an extraordinary place to be. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in, in Europe, especially in Italy. And I love the way Italy and France and Germany and the, the United Kingdom live their history. Newport is a place where you can live your history right here in the United States. And it's extraordinary. I thought, this is a place that needs to celebrate that through cars. And if I can help do that, I'm in. That gives us a great segue. I'd like to talk about some touchstone cars through different eras in automobile history. I wonder if you could maybe tell us about a few cars that really stand out for you. And I guess we could start with the brass era. Well, it's, it's very, very interesting um, because one of the great benefits of what it is that I've been doing for 20 years is the exposure I've had to cars that are varied. And in this job, it's been particularly wonderful because unlike a lot of other institutions, the Adrain collections run from 1899 through 2021. So it's the full gamut of automotive history and development technology and 
character and stories. And so uh, for those who, who have watched, and if you haven't watched, shame on you, you must get over there immediately, the Audrain uh, Museum Network on YouTube, you'll see that we post videos of me driving cars from the collection and some of my colleagues riding some of the motorcycles in the collection. And there are a very wide variety of cars. I had had some introduction to brass era cars before I came here, but the experience that I've been able to have with them since I've been here has been absolutely tremendous. And one thing which really stands out, I love brass era cars because of the sheer pace of development. When you think about uh, the fact that at this year's Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance, we entered a uh, two cars, a 1953 uh, Ferrari 250 Coupe, as well as a 1916 Packard Twin Six Roadster. And I had the chance to drive that Packard on the 50-mile Pebble Beach tour. And it was spectacular. This big, smooth, powerful 12-cylinder car from 1916. And when I think about the fact that James Packard built his first one-cylinder car in 1899, 17 years later, here's a V12. This is absolutely extraordinary. And um, the pace of development was just so incredibly quick. Uh, one of the cars in the collection is a 1904 Curve Dash Old, which I drove. And it is a diabolical machine. Absolutely. I thought this thing was out to kill me. You know, never mind Christine uh, being an evil possessed car. Uh, this 1904 Curve Dash was absolutely astonishing on a, on a sharply crowned road and with no sneeze room whatsoever, driving this tiller vehicle. I thought, this is terrifying. The same day, I drove our 1902 Yale, a wonderful two-cylinder, I think it's a 15-horsepower uh, car uh, from 1902, which was simply spectacular. And I thought, you know, going from a horse and wagon to this must have been like saying, well, you can take the space shuttle to the grocery store because the power and ease that it had is just so incredibly remarkable. And in fact, um, there are seven pre-1904 cars in the collection, four of which I've had the opportunity to drive so far. And it's actually inspired us to do uh, something that uh, is similar to the great London to Brighton run. Next year, we're going to do a Bristol to Newport run for veteran cars, 1905 and older. It'll be a 33-mile trip. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. Uh, again, celebrating early history of the automobile in Rhode Island and also giving me <laughs> another chance to get out on the road and drive one of these great cars. Um, so it's also, I think, important to, to talk about the fact that every technology that's used in cars today was invented before World War I. And we've simply been refining those technologies, or in some cases, going back to technologies that were interesting ideas, but the technology of the day simply couldn't support it in a practical manner. And so that's one of the things that really turned me on about brass era cars. So to get back to your question, that 1902 Yale was an absolute revelation because it drove much like a 1920s car in so many ways. And yet here it was, you know, just after the turn of the, the 20th century. And then secondly, um, that Packard is just absolutely astonishing. It's like, it's like a supercar, it's like driving a McLaren today. It was just absolutely amazing. I can't imagine the wonder and awe that people had in those early years. And also, I think that people today don't realize how quickly we adopted the automobile on a wide scale. If you look at pre-1910 photographs, the, the streets are already quite crowded. Yes, it, it's one of those things that um, 
of course, it was an urban phenomenon until uh, the Model T came along. Um, but nonetheless, the rapid replacement of the horse with the car uh, in urban settings was remarkable. And it's also worthy to remember that uh, as much as cars today are scorned, um, they were welcomed at the beginning of the 20th century for the health benefits that they brought because the, the millions of horses that lived in cities made cities a horrible place to live. Um, the, the dirt, the smells, the diseases, it was just absolutely astonishing. And it's one of those things when, when uh, some people think, oh, let's go back to the old days before we had cars. Ha, I don't think they'd last a week in a city that had you know 100,000 horses in it. That would be quite an experience for for most of them, I think. Yeah. And, you know, the absolute sea change in mobility. I mean, prior to that, you could travel by rail, but other than that, you're connected to your horse or you're just using your own two feet. Well, that's the other thing, which is so interesting. And and this is the thing that that when I learned this as as a child in school, I was astounded because it went it was completely contrary to everything that I had assumed um, thinking about the pioneers. First of all, the idea of crossing the country <laughs> before the interstate highway system was fairly daunting. Uh, I would have been one of those people that that left the East Coast, got to St. Louis and said, okay, this is far enough west. But the people that actually went west from there and people have an idea today, oh, you got onto your covered wagon and hitched up your reins and did this to the horse and you rode, you, you drove to California. No, the wagons were to hold your stuff. You walked next to the horses pulling the wagon. And, you know, the idea that you, people actually, in effect, walked across the country. And the reality that when we complained <laughs> about being stuck in traffic for 20 or 25 minutes, it was an overnight trip from New York to Philadelphia not that long ago. So the freedom and mobility that, that the automobile provided and that also you could travel on your own schedule. Um, it wasn't stopping to feed the horse. It wasn't stopping to wait until the creek went down because there was now a road with a bridge over it. You know, there was, uh, as you said, a sea change in the way people lived and the access. Uh, there were still people in the 1920s, obviously, who were born, lived, and died within five miles of one spot. But you had the opportunity to travel thousands of miles if you wanted to. Absolutely. We went far afield from simply a couple of cars that you liked. And, and I love that historical background, you know, that perspective. Well, now, how about the interwar period, Donald? I mean, you, you talked about how there was an explosion of development in the early years, the brass era, like we call it. And then they began to refine and many manufacturers disappeared. You know, they just couldn't stay with it. They couldn't compete. The industry began to consolidate. And now we get also into a new era of technology that was developed during World War One, and that translated into automotive technology. Yes, it's it's one of those interesting things. Uh, you don't like to dwell on it too 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 long, but the reality was that both the world wars really pushed technology forward in a major way that was reflected in the automobile industry uh, after the conflicts were over. And um, a lot of the development that was made in engines for airplanes in World War I found their way into uh, automobiles afterwards. And also, um, one of the things you talk about the consolidation, sort of the, the multiple factors of economics and scale. 
really began to play in a very interesting way. And I think in a way that is much easier for us to see in retrospect than it must have been to see at the time, because people were still building cars in quantities which were unimaginable before World War I, but compared to the quantities in which cars could be built, they just very quickly became unsustainable. And it was about distribution. And one of the things Henry Ford is, is widely and properly credited with were his production methods, but as important, if not more important, was the fact that he understood distribution. He had Ford agencies everywhere. So therefore, you knew that when you bought something, it could be supported. You know, the days when people bought a car from a manufacturer in Indianapolis, and if you needed major repairs in your car that your local blacksmith or bicycle shop couldn't do, you had to send your car back to Indianapolis to have it repaired or to buy a new one. And that simply wasn't something which was practical for most people or that most people wanted to deal with. If you were one of the wealthy automobilists, it didn't matter because you ordered your car from Mercedes in Stuttgart or from uh, Lancaster in the UK, and you waited months for your car to arrive by ship. So it really didn't matter. You didn't need that every day. You weren't a farmer or a doctor needing his car to, to use for practical purposes. So the idea that you had the Ford agency in every town really made a difference. And some very good manufacturers went by the wayside because they did not have and could not compete with the distribution network that Ford set up. That plus, of course, automotive financing, which is a very interesting thing as well. That was really the big coming of General Motors. Uh, the fact that uh, having introduced automotive financing meant that you didn't have to save up to buy a car anymore. And more important, that more cars were on the road, all of a sudden, the secondhand market became an alternative to uh, buying a new car. And it not only put more people uh, on the road, but again, it encouraged the homogenization and contraction of the market because you wanted to buy a car for which there'd be spare parts. So you wanted to buy a car that was popular. You didn't want to buy a car which might have been a better car, but much more rare. Um, and then, of course, the, uh, the Depression, <laughs> obviously, was a big shakeout. But that, I think, had less to do with the quality of the cars or interest by the public as much as it was the direction of the companies. Many of the companies realized that they had geared up for an economy of scale in the 1920s that could not be maintained in the 1930s. And they couldn't sort of refocus themselves in a way that would ensure profitability in a smaller market. Given that backdrop, what car or cars really stands out for you in that interwar period? I mean, that's, I know that's a long time. We'll say 1920 to 1940. Uh, of course, a lot of people think immediately of Duesenberg or an 8C Alpha or a WO Bentley. Those stand out for me, but what about you? Yeah, this is probably the it's toughest a question you could possibly ask me because my interests are personally so wide ranging. As a matter of fact, I was just in a uh, restoration shop uh, yesterday uh, looking over a project uh, that we're having restored and my eye <laughs> was immediately taken. Um, now, this restoration project is one of my favorite cars on the planet. It's an amazingly rare, incredibly exotic GT car. And I was there to inspect that and make some decisions about the restoration. What caught my eye? A 1933 Ford Roadster uh, on a lift. Because again, just one of the most beautiful cars, I think. Plus, I have such an incredible admiration for Ford, especially in the 1930s. Because again, I love architecture. And uh, 
Albert Kahn, who's just one of the greatest industrial architects of all time. And the Rouge plant, to me, in the 1930s, just epitomizes the absolute zenith of American industrial accomplishment. Raw materials going in one side and completed cars coming out the other. And the forts of the 1930s are just the absolute epitome of that. It's, it's just astonishing to see these cars and the thinking and the execution behind them is just absolutely brilliant and amazing. Now, having said that, and I love uh, 30s forts, and one day I will have one before I shuffle off this mortal coil, but I cannot also ignore, obviously, my great admiration and desire for Italian cars, especially, again, you mentioned the Alphas. The Alpha 6C2300, the Alpha 8Cs, just extraordinary cars. And the symbol, the emblem of the Audrain Automobile Museum is a silhouette of our 1939 Alpha 6500 Sport with coachwork by Carrozzeria Touring. And it's not only one of the most beautiful cars in the world, but it's also amazing to drive. So when you get a car that combines great dynamic capabilities with brilliant style, and of course, also there's during this period, especially, um, but even after, but certainly during this period, Italian designers, mechanical designers, made works of art. The fluting for the air cooling on an alpha exhaust manifold is astonishing. It's something you just want to polish and put up on the wall as sculpture. And when it's connected with a car that operates the way it does, it's remarkable. You mentioned the, uh, the W.O. Cricklewood Bentleys. Um, for years, I heard about, um, oh, Bentleys are just this amazing thing and, and it'll be a revelation in your life. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to drive my first Cricklewood Bentley as a three and a half liter. And it was remarkable, much like that 1916 Packard that, that uh, I drove. This is a car that felt totally modern in terms of performance capability, handling. The brakes, of course, are not what a modern car's brakes would be. But And you sit bolt upright into the wind, but you have all the performance that you have in just about 80% of the cars that you can go to a showroom and buy today, relatively speaking. And so, again, there's heroic and beautiful cars in that period. And especially there's, there's a certain, I don't know, perhaps the right word is certain poignancy to seeing cars, especially the mid to late 1930s, when everything that's going on in the world, of course, with our knowledge of what is about to come, you just think, this is just like this spectacularly beautiful sunset. And, you know, the sun is going to set and things are going to be very different. But there's just this wonderful optimism that technology can solve all. And, and that's the feeling I get from cars in the 1930s. Um, I was also, I tell one other short story. Uh, years ago, I was in a restoration shop in Canada and they had sitting in the shop, one of the uh, replicas of the Benz patent uh, motor wagons. So you're talking about uh, Bertha Benz. I think, okay, 1886. And they had just finished restoring the chassis of a Duesenberg Model J. And I thought, this is astonishing. 1886 to 1929, they have made this kind of progress. This is the kind of progress I will not see in my lifetime in automobiles. And it was just, it was a wonder to behold. It was just absolutely spectacular to see. So that was a very, very, very long way around answering your question. So in the interwar period, if I had to pick two cars, uh, an Alpha 8C2300 Pescara and a Ford 1933 Ford V8 Roadster. I like those choices because they're very different and yet they're both very usable in their own way. 
You know, it's interesting. You gave us a little bit of insight on your thoughts on how this remarkable period would sunset. The way I look at that, Donald, is that the people who are responsible for those amazing cars were the very people who survived the First World War, the Great War, and did the most that they could having survived that amazing conflict. The Bentley boys are a great example, right? Because they're devil may care. They've got money to burn and they're just going to live life. You know, they've seen how they've seen how precious life is and the right. fact that so many of their friends did not survive the Great War. And um, we have uh, going back to that that, that uh, spirit, although not a Cricklewood Bentley. We've got a Darby Bentley here in the collection, a spectacularly beautiful uh, four and a quarter roadster open two seater uh, by the Carlton Carriage Company. It's a beautiful car in a spectacular shade of dark blue with just a hint of violet in it and a wonderful uh, brown interior. And this is a car with giant Marshall headlights and great driving lights and this wonderful big black steering wheel. And it's fabulous to look at, great to drive. And whenever I get behind the wheel of this car, again, I'm just transported. It's an English Thursday and it's late May and I'm just in the car and I'm leaving London. I'm driving down to Sussex for a, a, a weekend and I haven't a care in the world. The fact that in four years I might be dead because it'd be World War II or the car will be bricked up and you know, none of that is ever in my mind. It's just like all the horrible stuff that we went through from 1914 to 1919 is gone and over and I've got this fabulous car and it's a beautiful day. And you know that that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Donald, how about a car that you like from the post-war period? Well, I'm going to make this really 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 easy because my my real period of of engagement is sort of 1945 to 1965. Um there are probably hundreds of cars that uh friends joke with me and said, "Oh, everything is your favorite car, Donald. Is there a car you don't like?" I said, "Yes," and then I proceed to identify two cars that I wouldn't Particularly care to live with. But I had to say, people have often asked me, if you could have one car from the post-war period, what would it be, you know, sort of before 1969? And the car is the Fiat Autovu. And okay, why the Fiat Autovu? Well, first of all, because Donald Osborne always has to pick something that he has to explain, because it's not, if you don't have to explain it, it's not worth having. And again, it's one of those things where it's a fascinating uh, car because it's a sports racing car that Fiat made very few of between uh, 1953 and 1955. And uh, the V8 engine, a two liter V8 engine was originally designed for a large luxury car that Fiat was going to conquer the US market with. And they realized, ah, you know, we're not gonna do this. We're not gonna sell a big car in the US. It's never going to work. And so they killed the project. But the engineers that worked on the project loved this engine so much. We said, we can't just let this die. Let's, in our, in our nights sneaking behind management, let's design a sports racing car to use this engine. So they did. And without the knowledge of management, they created this car. They presented it and said, we have this car. So management said, well, okay, fine. But we're not going to give you any money to build any. So uh, if you can find a partner to, to work on this, you, you can do something and just do a small series of racing cars for customers. We're not doing it as a factory. So they partnered with Seata, who were doing racing equipment uh, for Fiat, and basically divided up the uh, the production of it and gave half the engines and suspensions to Seata. had a revolutionary suspension as well. And these wonderful little sports racing cars were extremely successful in Italian and European uh, club racing and in events, including the Mille Miglia and Tarica Florio. 
and they're just the perfect balance of lightness and enough power uh, to really give a really entertaining and uh, wonderful driving experience. These so-called factory bodies were designed by a Fiat designer called Fabio Luigi, Luigi Rappi, and they're a wonderful expression of sort of an art deco uh, pre-war streamlining look, which still looks quite modern in the early 1950s and give these cars a very distinctive look. And a number of the other uh, coach builders also body these cars, but they're so incredibly neat. They've got a great sound. They're rare, they're comfortable. Um, you can actually drive them on the street. They're not just for the racetrack or event. And I just absolutely love them. And uh, so as I sit here in my office, I'm looking across the office and one of my most prized possessions is the original artwork for the cover of the owner's manual of the Autovu. And it's just an amazing thing. I look at it every day and it's just fantastic. It's got this red Autovu with these wonderful speed lines behind it. And in typical fashion, this beautiful woman behind the wheel with this very casual look in her face, like, yes, I'm racing in my Autovu. What of it? It's just absolutely wonderful. So <laughs> that'll be my car. I love it. And that era of advertising is so evocative. Well, Donald, we just have a couple minutes left. Give us a little bit of a glimpse of what's to come at this year's Concours. Well, we're extremely excited about this year's Concours. Um, the entire event is based and formed around three attributes which define for us Newport, history, luxury, and sport. And this year we've put the emphasis on sport and we have a number of very special classes in the Concours to reflect that. We have a display only class of open wheeled legends, which includes some of the greatest uh, open wheel race cars ever. Uh, our sort of cover car for the Concours and all of our promotion has been the 1956 Maserati 250F, which Sterling Moss drove to victory in the Italian Grand Prix of that year. We have the latest acquisition to the Adrain Collections, a 1988 McLaren MP44 uh, that was driven by Alain Prost in his championship winning season uh, to three first places and three second places uh, during that season. We have the Indy Marchese Special, which ran in seven Indianapolis 500 events with five top 10 finishes. We have uh, the Gurney Eagle Formula One car from the Revs Institute collection, as well as a Gurney Westlake Formula 5000 car. In the judge classes, uh, one, a class called Born on the Track, which were cars that were made production versions of, of race cars. So the Porsche Abarth Carrera GT is one of the cars there in that class. We have a Ferrari 250 GTO. We have an extraordinary a, a range, of, range of cars. And also we're very excited, of course, about something which premiered at the 2019 uh, Concours event, which was the brainchild of Jay Leno, the 30 under 30 class. And this is a class for owners of cars who are 30 years old and younger, who have $30,000 or less in their vehicles. And we display these cars on the Concours field as a full class, judged as the other cars in the Concours field are judged. And indeed, the best in class, best in class of the 30 and 30 is eligible for consideration for best in show. The response was so tremendous in 2019, as was expected. This year, we actually have two 30 under 30 classes, one ranging from a 1922 Franklin to a 1991 BMW 325i convertible and a second 30 and 30 class, which is comprised entirely of Porsche 944s. That's going to be a great field. Can't wait to see it. The Audrain Concours and Motor Week, September 30th through October 3rd, right? Yes. 
And tickets are on sale now at the at audrainconcord.com. And one of the things too, I, I must not forget to talk about is a great seminar series. It's absolutely legendary. We've got a seminar which includes two-time World Formula One drivers champion Mika Hakkinen, along with three-time Indy 500 winner Johnny Rutherford. We have Lynn St. James, who was Rookie of the Year in her Indy 500 debut, uh, named one of the 100 top female athletes of the 20th century by Sports Illustrated, being interviewed by uh, Judy Stropas. We have Wayne Carini talking about the Hirohata Mercury, the first, arguably the most famous custom in the world, and that car will be here. And it just goes on and on, a list like that. Jay Leno and I doing a seminar, a uh, seminar on Porsches. We've got all sorts of things that, that really will engage a wide variety of automotive enthusiasm. Donald, sounds terrific. I really appreciate you being with me today. Donald Osborne, and uh, you can catch him on Jay Leno's Garage on CNBC. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We'll do this again. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you heard, follow the podcast and share the show with your friends. You can visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage if you want to support the show that way. It's just a new way to support creators online. Read articles, watch videos, and listen to the podcast at horsepowerheritage.com. The Instagram is at horsepowerheritage. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.